So, uh, happy Father's Day um, to all the fathers. Uh, I'll tell you one thing fathers like to do more than anything is tell stories. And I like to tell stories. I've liked to tell stories since I was little. Um, so I'm going to tell you a lot of stories today, but I promise they have something to do with the sermon. Um, so, I know, right? <laughs> David's like, oh, we're going to start already. Uh, so my first real job job um, out the house uh, where I wasn't mowing lawns or working for my dad, <clears throat> I try and, try and fancy this up. I was a carny, basically. I worked at an amusement park. I was a ride operator. And uh, one of the rides I was on most of the time was a ride called the Spider. Um, some people call it an octopus. It's got, it actually has six arms. So Oklahoma biology class, six arms, not eight. But um, it's called the Spider. And uh, it goes up and down, goes round and round. And uh, it's a really hard ride to run. It's really physically demanding. You have to lift up on these carts all day, and people get in, and you have to lift up their legs. And so working on that in the middle of the day, in the middle of the summer, in Oklahoma, on asphalt, it's really difficult. And I uh, was running it one night, and uh, I would do this thing in my head where I had like a play this game kind of what about what about, wouldn't it be really cool if like it rained and they had to shut the park down? <laughs> wouldn't it be really cool if the boss came by and go, you guys have been working so hard, here's a $1 raise. You know, like something, like I would just play these games, your mind just starts to wander. And I did this one night, I was running the spider by myself, it was really hot, huge long line, and uh, there was this guy that was working that season, his name was Denny, and I'll never forget him as long as I live. Really great guy, really funny. And uh, occasionally, when we were busy, they would send a loader over to work with you on the spider. And it was really cool because you had somebody to talk to and kind of hang out. And I started playing my game. Like, Wouldn't that be cool? What if, what, if, uh, you know, what if Denny came to work tonight and they, uh, they put him as my loader? That'd be really great. I'd have a loader, and I'd get to talk to Denny all night. So I'm sitting there, and a few minutes later, I'm like, it'd be really cool if Denny came by and he brought me something to drink. That would be real. I'm really thirsty right now. And I kid you not, five minutes later, I look up, and coming down the midway is Denny. And I was like, okay, that's just this is a coincidence. He was talking to one of the supervisors, and he disappeared. They had him do other jobs and stuff. And I was like, that's not. That's not. But sure enough, another 10 minutes later, here comes Denny, walking towards me with two big, tall drinks in his hand. Oh. Everything in the world that I wanted or needed was satisfied at that point in time. My 16-year-old self was a very, very happy person. I think sometimes the things that we need or think we need, they're real simple starting out in life, but they get more complicated as we go on. My worries at 16 seemed great, but they, compared to life, were few, and they weren't that, that important. But as I progressed in life, those needs and those wants and those desires started to become a little more complicated than a 30-ounce Mountain Dew. Um, most of our, our disappointments, the, the needs and the wants that we don't have anymore, um, most of those disappointments come from people. Let's just be honest. Um, people are disappointing. Who here has ever been disappointed by anyone? You can go ahead and raise your hand. I know some of you guys are friends with me. That's pretty disappointing. So, um, 
See, it's a joke. Um, no, so we've, we've been disappointed by people before. Don't, you don't have to raise your hand on this. Please don't, actually, as a matter of fact. Uh, don't answer this one. But think to yourself, have you ever been disappointed by someone who was close to you? That hurts worse. I can say without a doubt. It's because, you know, it's, it's the simple fact that we, we let our guard down, right? We let our defenses go, and we let people in, let them get close. So they hurt us worse. When the people that are closest to us hurt us, it hurts worse than anything else. People are really disappointing. In 1995, a man named Dave Peltzer released a book. It was entitled A Child Called It. And I read through the whole thing. It was fascinating. It was heartbreaking at the same time. Um, Dave recounts his childhood in this book. And it started out Norman Rockwell, picture perfect. Dad was a firefighter. Picked up a lot of shifts. He wasn't home a lot. He worked a whole lot, but he provided for the family. Mom was the absolute picture of what a housewife, you know, the, the 1950s housewife. Um, compulsive cleaner, amazing dinners, super complicated recipes. She doted on the kids constantly. He recounts in the book, uh, a Christmas in particular, that they all went out and they cut down a tree together and he said, it, it felt like hours, we spent hours decorating this thing and then we sang carols around the tree. And it was great, life was great for Dave for a while. But at some point, his mom's mental health began to deteriorate. And on those long stretches of absence when his dad wasn't there, his mom started to abuse him. It started out with a push or shove or slap, and the physical abuse began to grow. Then she started doing things to make sure that he was ostracized from his friends at school. Uh, there, was a, there was a time period where she wouldn't allow him to wear anything else but the same set of clothes to school for about two weeks. Same shirt, pants, underwear. Of course, it started to smell after a while. The other kids noticed he was dirty. He lost friends. And at one point, she actually started to starve him, withhold food. Um, Dave recounts this as kind of a mixed blessing. No one wants to starve to death. But it was through this starvation that the counselors at his school and Child Protective Services actually noticed something was going on at home. To make it even worse, Dave had older brothers and sisters who endured none of the same abuse. The person who was supposed to be taking care of Dave let him down and disappointed him more than I think anyone in Dave's life could ever. The story has a happy ending, you should know. He writes another book about his, his travel into foster care and about his foster care experience. And then a third book, Man Named Dave is what it's called, where he recounts becoming a motivational speaker and a writer and using his experiences in life to tell people that there's hope. His faith in God actually led him to become a writer and to do these things. The story has a happy ending, but it doesn't change the fact that Dave was disappointed by those closest to him. We all know someone who's disappointed us to some degree or another. Maybe not the same degree as Dave. Some of us so. But all of us have been hurt. Why? It's 
because we're all disappointing. I say that kind of in jest, but Romans 3.23, actually, Dan read it earlier, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all imperfect. That's why we disappoint each other. And I think that's the scariest thing about disappointment and about facing stories like Dave's is that as humans, we're all capable of being a disappointment to some degree to someone else around us. We always think of it as a problem with other people, but we're sinners too. We have imperfections. And I would go out on a limb and say that all of us at some point in time have disappointed someone. I have good news for you today, though. God doesn't disappoint at all. He never disappoints us. You heard this sermon, I'm sure, before, usually around Father's Day, Mother's Day. Um, God is all things to all people, you know. Um, in our culture, it's not a new thing. It's a, it's a thing that's been with humankind. But in our culture, it's a, it's a thing where people don't always have great parents or they don't always have both parents. Or, and so it's around these holidays that we hear this sermon about God being everything that we need in our life. Even when we're disappointed, God's there. Even when people let us down. And these sermons aren't wrong. I, I want to I point that out. I'm not downplaying these sermons. But I, I think sometimes we forget how many roles God fulfills. Some of you have seen these posters. Um, they were real popular when I was growing up. Uh, it's a list of the, the names of either Jesus or God that you find in the Bible. And uh, normally it has, in big print, it has the, the name. So this one says, Advocate, Lamb of God, the Resurrection and the Life, Shepherd and Bishop of Souls. And underneath it, it has the corresponding scripture. So we've all seen that. And I think if you really take that into account, it really illustrates to us how many roles God fulfills. Exodus 3, 13 through 14 says, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is actually one of the first times in the Bible that God names himself, I am. I am who I am. And it's important because people or, or the pantheon of, of prehistoric gods or even historic gods would name themselves in conjunction with something else. I'm the God of thunder and lightning and war. I'm James of this town or James the son of this and we would always name ourselves in conjunction with where we come from, who we are, what we represent. Even the gods of the time would do that. And so it was really important for God to say to, say to Moses, I am. No further introduction needed. I'm the one true God. I'm the only one that exists. I am. So this is the first time, the first role that we see God fulfill. I am. And we see a hundred different names throughout the Bible. Um, the one true name of God, uh, the way we verbalize that is, is Yahweh. Um, it's actually the technical term for that word, Yahweh, is tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton. 
which sounds like a robot of some sort, but really just means a four-letter word with the vowels taken out. Um, that's how ancient Hebrew was written down. They took the vowels out. So all we're left with are, are the consonants. We don't know how that word is actually pronounced, but kind of colloquially, we all say Yahweh. It just means God. It's God's name. Um, we take that name and we add vowels to it. So if you ever study the, the writing of the King James Version of the Bible, this is how we come up with the name Jehovah. So they use the Tetragrammaton, and they take all the vowels from the words Adonai and Elohim, which mean God and Savior, or God and Lord, and they shove those vowels into Yahweh, and we get the name Jehovah, which is another name for God. We see names that we make up for God that aren't necessarily in the Bible. Um, Orthodox Jews use a phrase, Hashem, which just means the name. Uh, if you're a fan of Modest Yahoo, the uh, Hasidic rapper and reggae star, you've heard the phrase Hashem before. Just another name we have for God. But I think the really important names for God are the names we give to God when he fulfills a role in our life. And the way we see those written out a lot of times are a combination of the word Jehovah and usually another Hebrew word. For instance, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is our banner, can be found in Exodus 17, 8 through 15. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides or the God who sees to it. The story of the near sacrifice of Isaac is where we see that. Um, Abraham brings Isaac to sacrifice him, except God provides a lamb. So he actually refers to that place as Jehovah Jireh, God provides, God sees to it that it's done. Genesis 22:14 is where you find that one. Jehovah Rapha or Jehovah Rophi. Exodus 15:25 through 26. So this passage takes place Moses is leading the Israelites past the Red Sea and he says this Verse 25, then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring, you, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you, Jehovah Rophi. So what does this mean, God fulfills these roles? Well, God has so many names because he does so much stuff. You know, we've got that, that poster that has all those names on it. It's really easy to see that God fulfills these roles. We forget sometimes the roles that God fulfills. There's a big movement in the church now to recognize the feminine side of God. Um, Genesis 1, 27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We always remember the male side. We call God he. Um, we remember his masculine traits. But we forget that women are equally created in his image. Hosea 11:3 through 4 says, It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like the one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. God is a, a mother in this, in this example. 
God fulfills literally every role in life that we would need. He's mother, father, healer, provider. But what if you don't need anything? What if, what if all your needs in, in life are met? Some people would say, I don't, I don't need anything else. I don't need your church. I don't need the gospel. I don't need, I don't need your Jesus. I don't need your God. <clears throat> but I can guarantee that that's not the case. I guarantee that everyone needs Jesus, and I'll show you why. Go with me, if you will, kind of put yourself in this setting. You're in ancient Palestine, ancient Israel, and you're a part of a group of people who have been waiting for a sign. You've been waiting for a savior. And along comes a guy who starts ticking all of the boxes. Every last one of them. He's a miracle worker. He comes from the right place. Comes from the right background. He starts doing and saying the things that the supposed Messiah would say and do. Matthew 16, 13 through 16 recounts this period. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You have to ask yourself why it is he came to that conclusion so quickly. 